Greetings. It's Ronell and John from Never What You Think, the community for thoughts that dig deeper. This is Thoughtwave Podcasts, where we chat with other thinkers and delve deeper into meaningful topics. So today we have Jonathan Zaidman with us. He's the executive director and founder of the One to One Movement. Uh, how are you doing today, John? Oh, great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So you mind telling us a little about yourself and the One to One Movement? Sure thing. Uh, my name is Jonathan Zeidman. I'm Sorry. <laughs> Zeidman Zeidman. Uh, I was born and raised in San Diego, but my parents are from Mexico City, so immigrants to the United States. Mm-hmm. I had a fairly traditional immigrant childhood, so um, born and raised here, like I said, grew up here, and really always had a pretty strong appreciation for San Diego and community and kind of all of the, um, the, the benefits that came along with being from a very family-centric, community-centric community, and then moving to a place where everything was really awesome. Um, grew up really involved in a few key causes. Uh, specifically, homelessness was something that was really uh, a passion of mine. I spent my Sundays, I think, from probably age eight on volunteering at St. Vincent de Paul, uh, feeding the homeless. And actually, as a 10-year-old, spoke at San Diego City Council uh, about having uh, legislation raised where restaurants would be able to donate their uh, food scraps to uh, shelters, which back then was illegal and now um, is, is actually permitted. So um, it, it wasn't really a specific passion for one particular cause just as much as equality. And, and that's kind of what's led me through my both personal, then academic, and now professional career and uh, the work that I do. Cool. Cool. And so how, what is One to One Movement and how did you come to create this? Sure. So the one-to-one movement is a nonprofit organization, a fairly young organization. We're now entering our fourth year. Uh, it's a fairly uh, unique place for a nonprofit to be, actually. There's a lot of 10 and 20 and 40 and 50-year-old nonprofits, and there's a lot of three-month-old nonprofits. Usually the startup organizations just don't make it. You know, As with any startup, startup nonprofit is very challenging. And one of the more challenging aspects of startup within the nonprofit community that really isn't necessarily the case in for-profit is that of risk aversion from foundations, from donors, from corporate entities. Uh, in the nonprofit space, people are scared to give money to something that might not make it. So oftentimes innovation is, is challenging in the nonprofit space because us as the nonprofiteers are uh, challenged with the fact that the funding resources don't come easily when you have a new idea and are trying to roll it out. Uh, so we've made it over that, um, that hill and have now become more sustainable as an organization. We get paid now, which is a really great development. <laughs> from, yeah, takes a while. Um, so coming now into our fourth year, we continue to identify where our core programmatic and operational uh, differentiation is. And something that we wanted to do when we started this organization was really bridge the gap between what truly is sustainability as a cause and then the people that feel totally disconnected from that. And, and that's a, a growing community. But fortunately, we do have a raising amount of awareness towards green issues. And it's something that's becoming more prevalent in media and in academia and in culture. But we also have people that feel totally disconnected from that. And in large part, some of those challenges come from the fact that Nonprofits that focus on these issues can be fairly alienating when they're communicating to people that don't already feel as if they're a part of that community. So they may say something like, if you don't drive a Prius, then you're a part of the problem. 
right? Or if you've shopped at Walmart ever before, then you're accounting for this. Or if you yeah. eat meat, then you're that. And, and really what that does, people, yeah. yeah, we all have. Yeah. What a shaming. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it's accusation and judgment, which in turn, I think, does have a certain effect on some people which hear that and say, okay, well, I don't want to be that, so I might make a change. But those who don't have that reaction say, well, I don't want to listen to that, so I'm just going to go stand over here now mm-hmm. and really become even more distanced from that cause. And what that essentially does is make that person feel as if they can never be a part of that movement. So we essentially had a vision to create an organization in which we can be more accessible and inclusive to that person and find ways in which they can be a part of the sustainability movement through areas which might already be within their interests or actions that might be more feasible within their life. Um, Something that we really aim to do from the onset of developing this organization is break down these boilerplate definitions as to what we have tabbed as sustainable actions. So, like I said, driving a Prius, putting solar panels on your house, shopping at Whole Foods. These are all great examples of actions that could have positive environmental and social aspects to them. But if you look at those three specific things, you know, if you tell someone to drive a Prius and that's the only way to be a sustainable driver, well, you're eliminating the fact that maybe they could be a walker or take the bus or ride the bike. But when you're saying it from that communication strategy of specifically you got to drive a Prius, what you're telling that person, if they are not ever going to be a Prius driver, is you can't be a sustainable driver, right? Same with solar panels, right? If, if you live in New York City and you live in an apartment, you're probably not going to put solar panels on your apartment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't be sustainable or shopping at Whole Foods. Maybe you could grow your own food. So what we wanted to do essentially is kind of break down this, uh, this misconception that there's only one way to make positive environmental change and it has to be that way or else you're the wrong way and say, what's your way? Right? What's a way that fits within your life, whether you live in New York City or San Diego or Detroit or Johannesburg? Um, So we built this organization with that core principle, um, really focused on uh, how we can get people excited about sustainability instead of once again uh, come across as accusatory or judgmental. It's like asking for a lifestyle change too. Right. If you ask me to drive a priest, what if I'm not a Toyota fan? Right. And my my family's a loyal like Ford family. Or even more like seriously, like as you said, like. Say you live in Seattle, trying to place up solar panels, it's not as feasible as, say, San Diego, where the sunlight's much more pertinent here. So, yeah, it's good to address people where they're at as opposed to just blank and statement. Right. Uh, we also saw environment is a particularly interesting cause when it comes to social justice, because unlike a lot of other issues like um, cancer awareness or adopting puppies or supporting veterans with jobs or a lot of very deserving causes can be very easily personalized because you can just say there's a person that's affected by this here's a person that's being reached by that here's a puppy that needs a home and you can really just point to a, a person or, or a thing mm-hmm. whereas environment is really truly everything yeah. so it becomes a question that when someone who doesn't already feel an inherent connection to this as a cause because they've never read a book or taken a class or had a conversation that drew them in effectively it becomes really fairly overwhelming When I tell you, you have to be a better environmental steward of your community, what you're hearing from me is, dang, I have to change the way that I eat, the way that I get around from place to place, the way that I use water in my day-to-day life, the energy consumption, the waste that I produce, and it becomes like a completely overbearing task. A chore. A chore, exactly. And and something that, I mean, I've got to get to work, and I have kids to take care of, and I've got a mortgage, and now you're asking me to do all these things. So... 
Uh, the reason why we are the one-to-one -one movement is we wanted to highlight the fact that every single one positive action can have a positive reaction. And that's a good enough start. You know, we wanted to engage people to say, make one change in your life. And hopefully seeing the positive benefits of that, be they save money or become more integrated into your community or feel good about an action that you did, those should lead you to be able to take more positive further steps. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I think that's really good. I never really heard of anything like that. Like, you know, there's Tom's and there's Greenpeace. <laughs> like, I never heard of a nonprofit about sustainability like that. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what makes you guys innovate and why you've sustained yourself for these past four years, you said, right? Yeah, four years. Um, we tried a few different approaches. So essentially, one of the key factors of starting this organization that we wanted to address is the non-replication of efforts. I think a lot of people start nonprofits simply because they think that they might have better ideas or they don't want to take instruction from anybody else anymore. Right. But there are a lot of organizations that essentially duplicate the same thing that another organization is doing, which can thereby really kind of have a negative effect, right? If you're clouding what that cause may be and muddling up dollars and, um, and then taking a bandwidth in that space. Uh, what we wanted to do essentially is serve as, as an entity that really isn't active in this space. So when we developed uh, the, the programmatic model for one-to-one, -one, we highlighted three key areas in which we wanted to innovate this space and in, in which we wanted to work differently than anybody else. So uh, the first one of those was education. The traditional environmental education methodology includes stand in front of a class and tell them all of the information that you may want them to know, mm -hmm. which is really pretty much standard education. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and, and we're seeing now huge movements towards really shifting that mm -hmm. you know, in project-based schools. Exactly. Um, that really hasn't taken hold in the environmental movement so much as of yet. So we knew when we developed educational programs, something that we wanted to focus on is really the exact opposite. Really no lecture, all interaction. So we developed a project-based approach at engaging students to think about sustainability uh, from a more personal, individualized standpoint. So, for example, one of the programs we lead uh, is called the Away Project. What we do is we give each student a reusable duffel bag. We have them carry it around for the week and place within it any waste they generate. Right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We come back at the end of the week and we conduct personalized waste audits with each student so that they can really generate a, a very tangible understanding as to where some of their challenge areas lie. So instead of maybe the traditional method of coming into the classroom and saying, we all use too many plastic bags, we all use too many plastic bottles, we all waste too much stuff, it's more, well, John, you seem to be you know, having a challenge with this area, mm -hmm. Ronell, you might have a challenge here, and you guys don't need the same solution. Right. You should develop right. solutions that apply to you, and then something that we do a little differently is we allow for them to develop their own solutions. So we'll say, what do you think would work for you? Because ultimately, we're only gonna adopt changes in our lives that we feel is feasible to ourselves. Right? If yeah. I tell you, you have to bike to work every day, no matter what, you're gonna tell me, I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah. And you're gonna just give me a list of excuses. Exactly. Whereas if I tell you, all right, we're clearly not being very sustainable in the way in which we get around from A to B. You figure out a way in which you can do it better. And in that case, you can tell me, okay, well, maybe I'll walk sometimes, maybe I'll bike sometimes, maybe I'll take uh, the bus or the trolley sometimes, and maybe I'll carpool sometimes. But you're gonna find the one that actually works within your life, and you're gonna be much more uh, likely to adopt that practice. So that was kind of our, our um, innovation in the educational space. Uh, we also developed a programmatic arm focused on campaigns. Um, what we wanted to do is just focus on one particular thing that uh, was a particular uh, issue 
that we saw as, as pressing and raise awareness in a unique manner. So the issue that we chose is single-use plastic straws as uh, a waste stream item. Uh, we wanted to find a way to both bottom up and top down make change on that issue by um, using unique and creative communications, design, and, and additional strategies, social media. Mm. So what we did is we asked both bars and restaurants to provide straws only upon request, as well mm-hmm. as individual consumers to say no thank you yeah. when they go out to a restaurant in regards to straws. Funny thing so, actually, like, uh, last time we met, you, you mentioned that, and ever since then actually, I've only used cups and straws, I'm sorry, those caps and straws if I actually need to on the way out. Right, on the drive through Exactly. Yep. Otherwise, just drink from the cup. Yeah, it's, it's one of those funny things that the first few times you say it, it feels a little weird and you think yeah. people are looking at you and it's a little awkward and then you realize nobody cares. Nobody cares. Just yeah. Don't give you the straw. Um, it's, my, it's your money. For now, right. So. <laughs> right. Uh, so that was a campaign and we kind of do it not because our single goal is to eradicate the earth of straws, although that wouldn't suck because yeah. they're, they're pretty useless. Um, really more so because it's a really simple thing that anybody can introduce, uh, rich or poor, black or white, Republican or Democrat, you know, that is going to have a tangible impact. We're going to see less waste and that any single one person can do. So even when it comes to using the reusable bottle, there still is a barrier of entry to that and that you have to buy it. And for right. some people, that cost is prohibitive. Whereas not using straws, it's really just as simple as using your mouth. So just yeah. don't do it anymore. Exactly. Um, so, so that was a, a campaign and an approach that generated a lot of ahas. People just said, I'd never really thought about that before. And that's really, if you ask me what our organizational mission is, it's just to get people to say, I'd never thought about that before. Is that like slogan, uh-huh. it. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> I'd never thought about that. Um, like never what you think. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hmm. I've never heard that before. And uh, kind of the, the third branch of, of where we wanted to make specific change in this nonprofit field, specifically of environmental nonprofit work, is within design, communications, and events. So this is kind of what we've branded as engagement, right? Just getting people into the door, either physically or, you know, um, metaphorically. Yeah. So to that end, we really do try to focus on graphic design, on photo imagery, on multimedia, similarly social media, and, and really on our events, on showing people just a great time. And what that allows for us to do is to get people through the door and make them say, okay, I get it. Like I can interact with this nonprofit and it's not going to be stuffy mm-hmm. and they're not just going to badger me for money and it's not going to be boring. It's just going to be something that I would have wanted to do anyway and it happens to have this positive social impact. And then on top of that, we pepper in these programmatic messaging that, that continues to promote what it is that we're looking to do. So for example, the events that we host are zero waste. You know, from the first event that we hosted, we said, we think it's hypocritical that environmental organizations waste so much stuff. So how can we curb that? Well, let's figure mm-hmm. out a solution. And what that's done is actually really allowed for us to develop really elegant solutions that make our events even more engaging. Right? So if it's from using mason jars as glassware instead of plastic cups, or our business cards, for example, are, are just sheets of vinyl that have been cut into rectangles and stamped with our information, both of those things, which initially were uh, developed as solutions to diverting single-use waste items, really now become talking points. Where people say like, oh, I get it. Like, I get why they're using mason jars. It's alternative mm-hmm. to single-use plastic cups. I get it why this card looks a little different. It's not flashy and colorful and 3D and made out of wood and multidimensional. But people end up saying like, wow, this is so cool. Yeah. And it's a conversation starter. Yeah. So to that end, um, 
we feel that there are a lot of organizations that have really great content. Right? They're out there, they've got the information, they do great research, they've got the materials, but what they haven't really yet done is developed a platform that other people outside of their field really want to interact with. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think that we're really shifting the way in which the environmental movement speaks to people that aren't already a part of that. It's not just like interacting too, it's like, um, it's kind of like you guys aren't asking for much of a commitment, but then it's more like a bigger, broader lifestyle commitment slowly and like it's you know like that reaches them at the individual also not yeah. just a broad but it's at the individual level. yeah it's not like give us your credit card yeah. and we're gonna take monthly payments for, just for two quarters a day right yeah you're not asking for commitment it's just like here ever thought of this like just more like inspiring sparking change right. in their mind yeah we yeah. like to think that everything that we offer has a fairly low barrier of entry, right? It could be accessible to anybody. And there's a range there. If it's taking a class, right, if it's a K through 12 educational program and you're in there for an hour doing something fun with students, or even the programs that we offer that are more advanced, we teach 15 different more advanced permacultural classes like edible landscape, backyard chickens, uh, gray water systems, rainwater capture, we also teach a full permaculture design course, even those have a low barrier of entry. We really try to make yeah. them very accessible to people that, you know, they care already. Maybe they've got some free time, they've got mm-hmm. some extra space and they want to do something creative with it. And we allow for them to uh, interact with that material and, and that education in this really hands-on interactive model. Yeah, it's more like, let's let's chat. Let's just let's hang chat. out and do stuff. Yeah. Let's hang out. That's it. That's all I'm asking. Yep. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm. Because a lot of people, what turns them off is the commitment part. Sure. Yeah. One last thing before we move on to the next topic. Coming from an educational background, I have a bias of what you were saying earlier about the whole, um, the old approach was definitely a direct instruction, teaching um, people, people who are non- non-profit organizations, talking to uh, students uh, about the issue, but just blanket statements, just saying, uh, just giving the facts as opposed to what you're doing. And I think for me, uh, how I understand how ideas stick is relevance. And what you're doing is great because you're having the students interact and it's relevant to them, you know, as opposed to just these facts that might or might not actually stick. So that's great. Yeah, it's fascinating because in, in this space, you, you do get a lot of uh, questions from the people that are already a part of either the environmental nonprofit movement or the environmental funding movement. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, do your kids know the number on um, carbon emissions, right? Do they know how many pieces of waste are in the yeah. Pacific garbage right. patch? Do they know the rates of deforestation in the Amazon rainforest? I'm going to say that probably not. I don't think they know those things, but just knowing them isn't going to inspire any sort of change. Right. Feeling something and feeling more connected to a cause is. Right. So really our, our view is, is really much more bottom-up than top-down. It's not come into a classroom and introduce these fairly large or very, very large theoretical concepts it's more so individualized an issue and then from there you can balloon out so like i was telling Mm -hmm. you guys about the waste aversion program it starts with just the trash that you produce and that's the whole scope of the program and then within that conversation we can expand out into saying all right well what is the effect on your family right buying 12 bags of flaming hot cheetos in a five-day period how much did that cost you Mm -hmm. right and then what's the effect on your school what are some of the issues that we see around our campus what does having a dirty campus mean to us and the identity and what we feel about ourselves as a mm-hmm. school? What effects does it have on our city? 
right, look at the landfill. It was supposed to be closed five years ago, and it's going to be closed pretty soon. What are we going to have to do when we have to start shipping trash elsewhere? How much is that going to cost us? And then looking questions, at, you like have the individual have their own answer as opposed right. to just saying this is this what, is the answer. This is the answer. Yeah. yeah, and we value students developing their own answers to these questions mm-hmm. much more so than us giving it to them, even if they're wrong, because it really means that they're thinking about it. Exactly. Right? And just the mm-hmm. fact that they're spurring some sort of imagination. You know, we'll say, what's a solution to you know driving to school? And a kid might say, riding a tiger to school. And they're just trying to be silly, but when that happens, I'll say, okay, well, let's think about that. You know, <laughs> what are we going to feed our tiger? And is that going to be a beneficial relationship, cost-benefit analysis, and right. some energy expelled to getting to school? And then they'll say, like, oh, maybe not. Yeah, okay, maybe carpool, right? But they're like, <laughs> instead of just saying, like, no, you're wrong. We'll we'll try to tease out ideas and and let them use their own imagination. Or maybe we should find better ways to ride tigers to school. That's right. Personally, I think that would be great. We can train them. (laughs) There you go. Innovation. Just remind me, um, well, I don't watch it, but my friend keeps trying to get me to watch it. Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Have you heard of that show? It's on Netflix only, and it's written by the writers of Tina Fey and the writers of 30 Rock. Okay. And um, there's this scene, and she told me about it, where there's a, like a crowd of people and then they're like oh we need to get here get through here faster hold on i can clear a path excuse me do you have a moment to talk about the environment do you have a moment and then, they, and then the path clears them the path clears it for them to go I, I i get it i come out of trader joe's and i get that same dude that puts the clipboard in my face and says do you have a minute to talk about the environment i always say yes because i do want to talk about this is pretty much my life right now is to right. talk about the environment Really, what my uh, concern is with that approach is that they'll give you their spiel, which is always fairly well rehearsed. How is it with you when you talk to them? Well, I'll listen to what they have to say. And they're always, it's not like there's factual inaccuracies in what they're saying. I think that they're usually fairly well informed because Mm -hmm. it's coming from some sort of a script. Right. Right. And and that's okay. I'm, I'm always willing to talk about it. Uh, but then they'll get to the end of their pitch, and it'll always end in, like you said, for $15 a month, mm-hmm. you can support you know, conserving Sumatran rainforest. Yeah. And I'll say to them, okay, well, I work for a nonprofit myself, so, and it's a startup nonprofit, which is much smaller than your very, very large international nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And we have our own funding challenges right now, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now I'm not going to commit $15 a month. But I do care about Sumatran rainforest, so I'd be happy to help however I possibly can. And they get this kind of look over their face and they'll say, no, it's just the $15 that we're accepting yeah. right now. And, and that to me is, is really a turnoff. And I think it's yeah. a, a flaw as a nonprofit strategy because there's a lot of us, especially millennials that are coming out of school and have a huge amount of passion and sometimes free time and resources at our disposal in terms of the connections that we have and the network that we can reach and maybe donating 15 bucks a month is not the only way in which we can help a cause. So I'll, I'll always kind of walk away from that relationship feeling as if they lost out. And not to be egotistical and say, like, no, they lost yeah. out on me. Right. But I've been a nonprofit for 10 years now. I, I now am the executive director of a nonprofit. I have a certain set of skills that allow for me to do my job fairly well. And there is something that I can do to advance their campaign mm-hmm. if they were to engage me effectively. Right. But instead, mm-hmm. they let me walk away because I wasn't willing to donate $15 a month. And I think that that's a fail. And you're talking about millennials. Uh, yeah, people, millennials exit college. What do they have? College debt? <laughs> and is that $15 gonna work? No, but hey, we have these other tools. Why don't you use these? Right. 
So that was one of the, the, the ethos that we built into one-to-one was essentially let's find ways in which we can generate support from those people that do want to help beyond saying you have to donate. Right? There's mm-hmm. more that someone can contribute to a cause beyond $15 a month. So we've been very fortunate and very resourceful uh, to get to where we are today in having generated you know, free graphic design for our website, free webmastering, free event space for the events we posted, free labor in terms of volunteers for those events. Mm-hmm. And all of that came from the fact that people that we've interacted with feel good about supporting our organization because the first thing that we said to them wasn't, can you donate money? It was more, what can you do? And ultimately, from a financial standpoint, I also think that that's going to be a better yeah. strategy in that they're going to feel confident when they're ready to make a contribution to the organization. So uh, that, that's it's a nonprofit strategy, which I think is probably effective in generating revenue simply because of the numbers. When you stand on a busy corner for four hours, even if 10% of people donate, you're still going to generate some sort of revenue. But you're it's also off-putting. And it's also, like you were mentioning, it's it's pushing people away. They don't even want to start the conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're also talking about things that people can, like tools that we can use. Um, transitioning to another topic here. Uh, I feel like a lot of people don't get creative enough with what they can use, and a lot of times it's just clicking the share button. And so that brings the idea of slacktivism. Um, you want to summarize? Skip the last step. We're jumping around. <laughs> Okay. Bro. I wanted. I had a question. I oh, wanted to go ask. for it. Okay, go for it. Before you move on, yes, go for it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Before, I think you told us before, but I was just curious. What is your education background like? What did you take in college? Yep, I studied sociology, and I did a specialization in diversity and change. Okay, yep. and then I don't know what. Just what I know. You said you came from a community. You grew up like with a community. Like, is is there something else that really like? drives you like why do you do what you do i mean why do any of us do what we do um (laughs) i was very fortunate i i I have i grew up loved i grew up uh happy healthy you know i I had everything at my disposal so really i never had any excuses to say i can't give back because of this or i don't have the access or education or opportunity it's it's always been you know easy and and uh it's just always been a passion of mine. I think uh, I was fortunate enough to be involved in a series of different conversations and opportunities and experiences and educational programs that led me to be passionate about the things that I care about. And it extends far beyond environment. Um, I, I, you know, gender equality, sexual equality um, are issues that are very important to me. I, I care deeply about animal rights. I worked in the animal rights space for a few years. Um, I've been a long time vegan. I care deeply about our community and homelessness, as I mentioned before. So it's to me, it, it all really overlaps with one another. I think social mm-hmm. justice touches a lot of different issues in a lot of different ways that we don't usually expect. And I think that if we all make certain changes that we can see improvements in a lot of different fields at the same time. Um, but as to why I care deeply about these issues, I really can't say that there's one particular thing. Uh, I've definitely, I know my passion for uh, food systems issues came from reading Fast Food Nation in college. That was one thing that really generated a huge amount of awareness for me. I'd I'd stopped eating fast food already beforehand just because I thought it was pretty gross, but I'd never really put together all of the different pieces, environmental, animal rights, 
social right, in regards to mm-hmm. working in factory farms is the worst job you can have in the United States. So it really affected a lot of different fields in which I said, I can make a change here with my actions and it's going to have a positive impact. Um, I know something that really shifted the way in which I see the larger scale, and this isn't something that we work on at one-to-one, but watching the documentary The Corporation was also super eye-opening to me and being able to uh, consider some of the drawbacks of corporate greed and the effects that it has on our community. So it's, it's been really a series of things. Right. Um, I was selected, and I really don't remember how. I think it was really just because of cultural diversity. I'm Mexican and Jewish, which is not particularly common. <laughs> um, to go, I represented my high school at this uh, camp called Any Town, which was just a bunch of different uh, students from throughout the district. And we went out to Julian and worked on a series of sensitivity trainings and anti-bullying and communication skills. Well, this was 15 years ago now. Um, and this was before really bullying was an issue that we talked a lot about. So you know, that was a part of it. It's really just been a series of things. My parents were involved in uh, self-help seminars when I was a kid. I was the little 10-year-old in the seminar that would be moving chairs around, but also right. participating in the activities without really deeply understanding right. the impact of having conversations about lifelong resentment and abandonment <laughs> issues. But it's, it's really just been you know, a comprehensive package. Yeah, it's like you were, this was like your fate almost. Yeah, indoctrinated. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I just wanted to know, like, what sparked, what really, like, drives you to do all this great stuff? Well, okay, so going back, we were talking about how this is great that, you know, people not asking for a big commitment and a lifestyle change is a, is a turnoff for people, and so this is a great what you're doing is a great approach, but then there's also that flip side where you don't ask, you're not asking much of people and then they think that things just like, like John said, clicking the share or retweet is enough to help and it's called slacktivism. So what, I remember the last time we were talking, you had some interesting thoughts on how slacktivism is in some ways okay for nonprofits. So I think that awareness is always the first step. Right? You, you need to admit that there's a problem before you can take any lasting steps to address that problem. So if that first step is clicking a like or a share or a comment or buying a pair of shoes that gets another kid a pair of shoes and, and really maybe doesn't have the direct impact that we as the nonprofit movement want to actually see overall or if it's not fast enough to actually address the you know, rising concerns within the field, especially when it comes to climate change, right? We're looking at changes that we need to make today, right? And like as a planet, and we're, we're not going to make them tomorrow, and we're definitely not going to make them by liking something. But it's that first step. And, and to me, that's rung true since my days in college. Uh, I, I went to San Diego State University, and I was there at the time that the founders of Invisible Children were at San Diego State University. So... I was uh, in the, the club, the Invisible Children Club at San Diego State when the founders were in the club too, and saw the organization grow through years at, at being there and saw it grow to entities at pretty much every university across the country. And Invisible Children, probably just as much as any organization in the last 10, 15 years, has been accused of exactly that, being a slacktivist organization. It's just mm-hmm. been a very easy cause to get behind. You just went and you bought a hat and you showed up at a movie screening and then all of a sudden you were solving a problem in northern Uganda. And a lot of people criticize that. 
And, and I can see where that criticism comes from, but I can also say that a war that had been going on for 25 years and had generated no international attention was now being talked about and was now being addressed and was, there was now money being raised for it by hundreds of millions of people. Their, their Kony video reached 100 million views faster than any single one video in YouTube's history. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a you know, three-minute music video from a pop star. This was a 25-minute mini documentary that 100 million people watched. So to that end, you can say, well, what's the benefit of watching the documentary and not doing anything about it? I think that that might be the pessimistic way of looking at it. And I think the optimistic way of looking at it would be we now have 100 million people who know more about this issue in northern Uganda than they did before. And that's the first step towards making a change. So did 90% of those people go to Uganda and go help children? No. Did 10%? No. But 1% did through Invisible Children's effort. People went out there and helped the organization. People raised money and helped the organization. They donated their birthdays. They wore t-shirts to raise awareness. They changed their Facebook profile picture. And I think ultimately it got to the point at which, you know, Obama intervened. We sent soldiers out there and we're working to pacify the region. So when you're working on issues of grand scale, I think that there is a big benefit of generating mass mobilization, right? And sometimes that, well, it's, it's never going to happen fast in, in any social cause that you're working on. Now, if we're talking about something uh, more regional or localized, Right? We want to make change happen here and now. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe a different approach could be beneficial. You know, actually getting out of our, our homes and marching in the street or showing up somewhere or not showing up somewhere right, in action. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really do believe that taking any sort of step towards the right direction is a good start. Because without that, you know, that person would have been watching a music video. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on like the ALS bucket challenge? even having it became I feel like with that it became more of it just about the bucket challenge than the actual organization and sure. awareness of that like I feel like it got the message kind of got lost in there so yeah well it, it raised awareness about a disease that most people don't know about so it, it did generate visibility for a cause that somebody was working to promote it raised a, a huge amount of money I think uh, their average annual fundraising was between you know two and four million dollars. Last year they raised a hundred million dollars. Right? So there are tangible positive benefits to that. Um, are there people that do it and don't even know the cause of what they're doing? <laughs> sure, but there is no one single call to action that's always going to generate a hundred percent positive response rate. And that everybody's going to say, you know what, you're right. Um, even the most obvious things, the most simple cause where this is really the wrong thing to do. Even then, you're going to have people that just don't care that much about that cause. Right. Right? And it's not because they're bad people. They just haven't been particularly engaged on that issue in a way in which speaks to them. So sometimes maybe it is a bucket challenge right? or uh, something else, that you, a video right. or a, a like or a share. Um, you never know. Uh, what I can say uh, about the bucket challenge is that it, more people know uh, about the disease today than they did last year. Right. That's true. 
and to counter what I said too, there was I saw some bucket challenges where they were like, "Okay, I'm gonna do it," and then there was nothing. And like yeah. you're supposed to donate to the cause, right? Like, so it's it sparked to like making those people who do care about it, bringing it back again. Like you guys forgot that this is right. not a social right. trend. This is for something. Sure, there's a very serious yeah. cause behind it. Yeah, I can say from a from a pragmatic from a tangible standpoint coming from my world of, of the causes that I work on pretty wasteful in terms of the amount of water yeah, yeah. <laughs> that being said I, I really I have no problem with the campaign and I think that it's something that if you ask any single nonprofit in the world the most you know cause driven ethical right uh, mission critical organization mm-hmm. in the world if you say to them here's this opportunity to reach hundreds of millions of people uh, raise a lot more money towards your cause that you can disperse however you see fit and just generally uh, bring the, the work that you're trying to do to the forefront of the American and international conversation, I'd say pretty much any of us would say yes. Yeah, that's true. I wonder too, like, uh, the, this kind of stuff, like, the, there was a lot of backlash with Conan saying that it's he's he's been dead or he this thing has been over for a while and then going into how corrupt... Invisible Children is like all this other research or even the ALS and oh all or other organizations oh not all that money is going towards what they say it is and so these this that it can also backfire where I guess people are becoming like smarter and less distrust distrustful distrustful that works (laughs) distrustful of these kinds of like of nonprofits sure. trying to commit, like so. What, what do you think like nonprofits should do in this time where people are getting essentially smarter? Right. It's it's a very interesting philosophical and ethical question that you bring up, and I don't think there's a right answer. So if I were to say to you, what's better, Susan G. Komen raising a hundred million dollars and only donating. of it to cancer research, which is $10 million, or organization B raising $100,000 and donating 100% of it to breast cancer research. I I can't tell you what's better. You know, in Susan G. Cohn's case, they gave a whole lot more money to breast cancer research Mm -hmm. from an efficiency standpoint in regards to how much of the total revenue they generated went to the cause, a lot lower, but still to advance the cause, to put more money into the research, Susan G. Komen is a whole lot more effective. So I don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a traditional viewpoint that nonprofit organizations should be spending 10% or less of their revenue on administration. And, and I can understand why people feel that way. You know, you're, you're mm-hmm. donating your very hard-earned dollars and you don't necessarily want to see it go to uh, $250,000 a year executive director salary, especially when that organization is a you know, $600,000 a year organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see why people feel that way. On the other side, there's the argument of investing to grow. Right, You put that money into the organization so that it can go from a $600,000 organization to a $6 million organization or a $60 million organization. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think personally, I mean, I know that I don't need $250,000 to live. So in our case, at one-to-one, when we do become 
2.5 and $25 million a year operating budget organization, I don't need $250,000. I'd rather offset that cost and put it into my staff right, and be able to allow for them to live more comfortably. But that also reflects upon my personal uh, yeah. ethos. It, it's, you know, I, I believe in a more equal uh, world. So um, I don't know the answer to, to your question. There's a very fascinating uh, TED Talk by an individual named Dan Pallotta, and I think he was actually instrumental in developing or he might have actually developed himself, the Susan G. Komen three-day breast cancer walk, which has now, over the last 20 years, raised, mm-hmm. I think, nearly a billion dollars. Um, and he talks specifically about this, where he's saying, well, you know, we, we spend a lot, but we raise a lot more, and we attract greater talent. And um, I, I can't necessarily argue against that. I think that the organizations that are doing very well and in, in turn being able to really directly impact their fields in a significant manner are all investing fairly heavily in themselves uh, in terms of their marketing and their communications and their multimedia and their staffs. You know, they, they spend a lot of money to mm-hmm. get to where they are. Um, and I can't necessarily fault that. I've been a part of movements, student clubs at universities, uh, just collectives and groups of friends that had just the greatest of intentions, but we never got anything done because it was just six people sitting around uh, deferring responsibility to the next person. So oftentimes there, I can see the value in investing in yourself as an organization, um, but I also totally think that it's exorbitant what some nonprofits spend. I also, on that end, just because I've been doing it for four years, I know that things can be done more resourcefully. I know that not to compare one to one to other nonprofits, but the work that we do is as if not more effective than organizations that have 10 times the staff and 10 times the budget because we act resourcefully. We cut costs wherever we can. We utilize volunteerism however we can and, and support in that regard. Uh, so I think that it's our responsibility to be very careful with the money that people entrust with us. You know, we, we are uh, the charitable good essentially um i was fortunate enough at my last job to work underneath an executive director who had been in place for gosh 20 years i think and uh, at a 23 million dollar year operating budget organization she did international speaking opportunities was a very well-known woman she paid herself 30 grand a year and lived in dc which is is nothing to to live in dc and she always instilled in everyone from the from the intern to the executive staff that every dollar that the organization spent came from a person that donated that dollar. And some of those people didn't have very many extra dollars to donate. They did it out of the generosity of of their own heart. And if you look at it that way, instead of saying like, okay, we have X amount of dollars in reserve, if you look at it as all of those dollars are made up by individual dollars that sometimes children donated, right, through lemonade stands, or sometimes people that really just didn't have access to huge funds donated. Um, uh, You guys may know, but... The, there's a disproportionate ratio of generosity based off of wealth. So poor people donate a whole lot more than rich people do. Right. Mm-hmm. So if, if you look at it that way, the majority of philanthropic dollars are actually coming from people that don't really have too many extra dollars to spare. It's ironic. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think the most generous state in the United States per capita and, and in, in relation to average salary is Mississippi, which has the lowest uh, per capita salary in the United States. Just a mindset about community. Uh, I don't know about what the mindset for Mississippi is, but just the, 
you know, when you're poor, you have to work together with other people. Sure. So that's why people give more. So, yeah, ironic, but definitely I think true. part of that, too, is just knowing what, like, struggle feels like. Sure. That, too. Yeah. yeah. And there are very, very generous, very wealthy, philanthropic individuals. Absolutely. I mean, what there's a growing list now of billionaires who have committed to donate at least 50% of their assets. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. But I think uh, the majority of people that do come from uh, resource and access don't necessarily they kind of see it as like haves and have nots. I mm-hmm. was reading a, a really fascinating um, research study recently about how the, uh, the more expensive your car is, the less likely you are to stop for pedestrians ca- crossing the street. So people that have cars that, that see themselves as more affluent right. are less likely to value someone else to the point at which they'll say, go ahead. Again, um, the irony, but yeah. 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 It's just, no, I think, yeah, part of that too is just knowing you, what struggle feels like and mm-hmm. having that empathy. Yeah. Well, just to close this up, um, seeing how you've had experience and gone over the hump of... Uh, your organization has been a nonprofit that's lasted four years, which is unusual. Um, what kind of advice do you have for those who want to start a nonprofit? So I always say the same thing, and I get approached fairly often. I'd say at least five, six times a year of someone who says, You started a nonprofit, I want to start a nonprofit, what should I do? Mm-hmm. Well, first off, I'm always willing to talk to anybody. Uh, I, I see it as my civic duty you know when i was forming one-to-one i was fortunate enough to uh, coordinate meetings with people that probably at that point were above my kind of professional level of access and they were willing to give me the time so i've always been willing to give anybody the time at all but when someone says to me i want to start a nonprofit," my first recommendation is don't don't start a nonprofit. <laughs> um not because i don't think that it's important but because well one i think that if they are not resolved enough to follow through with their plan just because someone said don't do it then they probably don't have what it takes to actually go through it because it's a huge amount of work so if me just saying no is going to get them not to do it then honestly I don't think they were going to make it anyway but uh, I say don't because I think that there's a few different things that people should think of very very carefully before they start a nonprofit. one is is there any way in which I can incorporate this idea or this service or this program that I would like to develop into an existing organizations. So nonprofit has a huge amount of moving parts. Administration, operation, development, programs, communication. Most of us, myself included, are not experts in any of these or in all of these fields. And most of us aren't an expert in any of these fields. So signing up to start a nonprofit essentially means I need to be good at all of these things. Right? Whereas if you can incorporate your idea into an existing organization, they probably already have a development person and probably a communications person and probably an HR person. And you can just focus on your thing that you do well. So that would be my first recommendation is go find someone that you think is doing things the right way and maybe isn't reaching your exact demographic or providing your exact service and see if you can integrate your model into their organization. That's fairly challenging because you need to find that partner and sometimes they don't exist. So we didn't know of anyone that was doing things like one-to-one was, so we started the organization because we didn't see an area in which we can integrate this programming into someone else. 
Um, oftentimes it's challenging because, well, it's most often you're going to hear no. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, someone comes to you in your business and says, okay, I want to sell, you know, uh, carpet out of your smoothie shop. You, you might say, no thanks. Uh, but you, every once in a while you will come across someone that does have the vision to say, you know what, you seem like a bright person. You've got a good idea. I believe in you. Let's give it a shot. Right? And that's something that we've been willing to do at one-to-one. We're a throw things at the wall and see if they stick type of organization. If someone comes to us with a good idea, it's in line with our organizational mission. It's in line with our capacity, what we're looking to accomplish and our vision for what it is we're looking to do within the next X amount of time. We'll give it a shot. So there are people out there that would be willing to entertain that idea. That would always be my first recommendation. If not, if you're determined, I got to do this or it's such a niche thing, you know, I'm going to start an organization that does this here and that just doesn't exist. Um, I, I say go for it. My recommendation would be to look at your peers and find best practices. And usually that means looking outside of your space because if there were a current set of best practices within your cause, then that organization's already doing it well. But it's look at the, the parallel organizations that are being effective in, in similar fields. So like in my case, um, it was youth engagement, right? Environmental youth engagement, but I didn't look at other environmental organizations as to how we should operate. I looked at Invisible Children and Charity Water and the Truth Campaign and To Write Love on Her Arms mm-hmm. and these organizations that have very effectively engaged youth in issues that are totally separate from environment, mm-hmm. be they children in northern Uganda or access to water or anti-tobacco or suicide prevention. Uh, there were organizations that had very effectively generated visibility and support in youth movements. So I, I say look at best practices, meet with as many people as you can, right? I, I think requesting informational interviews is a great strategy for anybody, be it looking for a job or looking to start a new nonprofit. Um, most people are happy to talk about themselves. It's like their favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> so if you say, hey, can you talk about yourself for 45 minutes and I'll just listen, most people will say yes. Um, and ultimately, just like a for-profit, and I think even really more so because it's, it's such a labor of love, you're gonna have to be willing to work really hard mm-hmm. and, and that's just uh, something that anyone in nonprofits can experience but especially in an organization which really has to start from the ground up awesome Great. Um, well we have I don't know if you have anything but we would want to open the floor too we've been asking you a lot of questions yeah. if you have any questions for us yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear what your guys' vision is for this particular podcast. I know you mentioned kind of thought leaders and kind of bringing ideas to the fold, but uh, what specifically are, are you looking, what conversations are you looking to harbor? Well, it started because um, we started off with just being a blo- uh, having blogs and videos, and we it was just me and John sharing our thoughts. And we're yeah. like, we need to get other people, other mm-hmm. thinkers here, and it's... Mm, we got we started off having guest bloggers and sharing their thoughts through blogs, but we figured not everyone likes to write, right. and not you know, and or can have that talent, and so we tried featuring people in our videos too. But then we're limited with our location, and then we're also uh, tr- we're testing out too if we can record Skype interviews and. We're figuring that mm-hmm. out, and then we figured, well, what if the, you have? Then you have those people too, because even just within our friends or our community, there's people who don't like to be on camera. Yeah. So then we're like, well, what are other ways that we can try to reach out? That's not 
just locally and can appeal to people who don't just can't write and or don't like to write and who don't want to be on camera which is me (laughs) (laughs) so podcast yes and we just looked into it um also to further it um we were because you could still have interview people are still gregarious on camera and also on microphone the thing is though youtube uh, the platform is much more for condensed videos. Mm-hmm. Typically, you don't see videos that are 30 minutes unless it's for... Like a TED Talk. A TED Talk for gaming or for like an explanation of how to do. And so podcasts is a perfect medium to have a long conversation, not be so direct to the point. You can have, you know, for free, people can laugh, you know. And actually, that was one of the criticisms we got about our older videos is that we would kind of get off topic and... Um, it would be a little more conversational and unfortunately YouTube, a lot of YouTube a lot of the audience for YouTube just doesn't care for that sure mm-hmm. but for podcasts people drive to work they need something, they need something to listen to or they work, do work at home and that podcast is the perfect thing for that because that's why longer spiels longer conversations more accessible for podcasts as opposed to YouTube yeah, yeah. so our vision is like to get involve more of the people that are like that are guest bloggers or people that who want to help us because there are other people who want to help us yeah. out but they don't want to write they don't want to be on screen so this is just offering them another avenue to help us and be part of our community, community. Yeah. <laughs> and then reaching out to more i guess heavy hitters too like you and not just hey this is our friend that we were <laughs> had friends with in college and here's what she has to say too but just, just having a little bit more of a weight, a weight and yeah. thought leader like you. So that's hopefully our vision for this podcast. Great. Yeah. Any other questions for yeah. us? No. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, Make sure to check out now. This is we're talking to the audience. Yeah, the audience. <laughs> hey, <laughs> make sure to check out the one to one movement. Um, one to one movement. That's the letter, the number one. One T O one. Movement. Dot org. And they have Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, and then make sure to check us out. Never what you think at never what you think dot com. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. And if you have any thoughts on slacktivism and nonprofits and anything that we talked about today tweet us at it's nwyt or at one to one movement or post on either of our facebook pages all right all right thanks for listening until next time it sounds so yeah, cheesy well, we're